You may not have seen The Seventh Seal. You may not have even heard of The Seventh Seal. But this is a movie that has made such an impact on film that you have almost certainly seen its famous imagery. The character of Death with a pale white face and a strange foreign accent in Bill and Ted's bogus journey? Straight out of Ingmar Bergman's 1958 film. With each shot framed like a painting, this movie changed the way that films were made. Every actor gives his or her best to a script that reads like a play, because it was one. For a 21st century audience, this one has some headwinds working against it. Black and white, Swedish language, and most importantly, 65 years of imitation. But people call it a classic. So we asked the lamb to open the seal on a bottle of aquavit and help us see what all the fuss is about. Join us now for episode 88 of Toasting the Classics, The Seventh Seal. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call classic and we talk about it while we drink something inspired by the classic. I've got guest host this week. My name is Chris Craig. I am Joe the Congested. Joe the Congested of Stockholm. Welcome to the pod, guys. You've uh, both been on the show before, so I know you need no introductions. What are we doing this week? Today we have opened the seventh seal. Oh boy. Well, then things are going to have to be quiet for like, I don't know, about half an hour. Very strange Bible verse. Except but, uh, for the angelic chorus. Oh, I thought it just said that, that there was silence in the heavens for a half for like something like a half an hour. It's really oh, I was I was referring <laughs> to the actual opening of the movie, which Oh yes. Okay, yeah. that's different. Which, which, right. Yes, but both are true. Although I do like your I do like your translation of that verse better. It was silence in the heavens for something like half an hour. Yeah, that's, that's the way it sounded to me from Give I don't know take. whether it's yeah. the do we want to talk about the translation? Do we want to just open completely the weeds like that? Let's let's go ahead and I'm gonna put a pin in translation and yes let's talk about it at some point but first of all so that people don't start clicking and turning off the podcast what are we talking about <laughs> this week we're we're talking about a famous film from 1958 called the, the seventh seal by ingmar bergman but maybe ingmar the bergman which i think means <laughs> mountain man you do not need to do this quickly the bergman ingmar <laughs> ingmar it's opening the seventh seal. <laughs> Play Welcome chess. back to Play chess. Chess. Dad. <laughs> Not fear of the reaper. All right, we need to stop that immediately. Asking the God question. Anyway, sorry. All right. <laughs> this is a famous film. We're going to say it's at least famous. It's highly acclaimed. I was actually kind of surprised that the Metacritic score was only 88. That seems kind of low for one of <sighs> these type of films. It's black and white. It is definitely not a movie that you should hold in your hand. By six minutes in, you're just expected to understand that you're following no, two I, parallel like, journeys of body and soul. I would not be surprised if the Rotten Tomatoes score was low. I'm talking about Metacritic. Metacritic, is, if I'm not mistaken, aggregates like intelligent film reviewers, doesn't it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure off the top of my head if Metacritic is aggregating audience scores as well at this point. If it includes audience then yes that would make sense black and white mm -hmm. right away i mean it's just yeah. gonna be a problem for black it. and white foreign language i would i would actually hesitate to say highfalutin it is certainly a very serious film in some ways it is also surprising that in other ways it is kind of not you could definitely call it earthy and you way. could you could yeah, yeah. In, in the way that a lot of things actually from the middle ages like canterbury tales or the i was going to say like like like, like well we'll get into this later but like but, but like my cake was kind of this is kind of like what if canterbury tales was also the catcher in the rye uh why catcher in the rye just because of the uh, existential dread and the wandering around and you got it in one okay mm -hmm. all right yeah that that makes perfect sense well let's try to, i mean a lot of people might not know this movie I think there might be some well, people out although there. they've certainly been although they've definitely seen something that like references anyone out there who hasn't seen this movie if you saw some stills from the film 
you would realize a million things that have been inspired by it and maybe even mm. have seen these shots before. They're very famous. And I don't think also like the, like this vision of death is extremely iconic. Extremely iconic. Although I did have something that I learned about. I might as well talk about it right now. But if you guys mm-hmm. remember the movie Meet Joe Black. Yes. Uh, I actually haven't seen that one, but yeah. I, I haven't seen it either, but it's got, I thought about it because I thought Antonius Block. And I was like, oh, maybe Joe Black is from that. But then I realized there's an old movie from the 30s called Death Takes a Holiday. Mm-hmm. which is meet joe black is a is a remake a remake of that holiday. right that movie actually precedes the seven seal by about 20 years so it's a movie from think, the 30s <laughs> yeah the movie from the 30s yeah the original one i'm thinking it's more likely to have influenced this than the other way around strangely mm-hmm. enough i thought that was uh, so the idea of death as a character in a film mm-hmm. this by quite a bit weirdly mm-hmm. i thought that's that's candidate for a big surprise for me i would have thought we can, that- we can kind of come back to that as well because i think there's also a lot to say about like how this movie is also surprisingly modernist in a lot of ways. Did you say modernist or modern? For the former, modernist. Modernist, okay. Well, yeah, definitely put a pin in that. I'm interested in hearing what you want to say about that. But Mm -hmm. let me just describe what the movie is Mm -hmm. very briefly. It's set in Sweden during the Black Death. So uh, that'd be about 1348, 49, something like that. And Mm -hmm. the main character is a knight who's just come back from the Crusades, which is not something that happened in 1348 but anyway <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we can talk about some of the anachronisms later but essentially he comes back and you're not it's not really obvious that the countryside has been ravaged by the plague that doesn't really seem to be apparent until no so this yeah yeah this movie you could say a lot of things about this movie are not readily apparent like i feel like this movie opens extremely cold and then, like, gradually explains itself as you go on. It, like, it opens with just like I like. I was wondering if they were shipwrecked or something. Tony's yeah. block and his yeah. and like his squire Yuns like just wake up on the seashore, like lying on some rocks. Yeah, yeah that it's was very read that they were shipwrecked. And mm-hmm. the first person but they have horses. One yeah. horse actually. Which yeah. Is- yeah, they have a horse. Yeah, that's true. That is a little strange. I think it's do horses swim. I saw some takes on this. Horses do swim. Yes, horses are actually pretty good swimmers. Some of the takes I saw on this is that the beach represents birth and death. Mm -hmm. So they start out on the beach randomly, having been dropped there inexplicably because that's how life starts. The the movie ends up on the beach again, but that's just... Yeah, so so I wouldn't call this movie dreamlike exactly, but there are a lot of bits that kind of primarily work on like a symbolic level. But I wouldn't call. But at the same time, I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a David Lynch style thing, where like you can't really read it on the surface level without it not having it make sense. I literally have a quote from David Lynch that I was about to read when you were talking about <laughs> that because he he was commenting on this director, and I think it's Tarkovsky. Is yeah, that mm-hmm. my, yeah. So that's a guy. Was, yeah, he was saying that you know people shouldn't expect art to make sense because they're used to life not making sense, and just just take his his movies that way. It's like life; it's not going to make sense. That's a very Lynchian quote. That's yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You beat me to it. I was going to see that verbatim. So anyway, essentially, in terms of a plot, what happens is Antonius Block the Knight. This is a movie about a sad night. This is a movie about a troubled night. I don't know if sad would be the. It's there's. Uh, I think sad is a pretty able description of him. Sad you know. covers some of it, but he's more like haunted by what he's seen in the Crusades and things. Maybe like traumatized a little bit, but also yeah. Just... So I think yeah. So I, I I think you could make a very valid reading of this movie as being a movie about depression. Yeah, I, I guess that's the mark of like a rich movie that we keep like yes. stepping over ourselves yes. to talk about it. But yeah, yes. we'll, we'll maybe come back to that. But I think you can make it. I think that that is a a very valid reading of this movie as well. 
That's interesting. I didn't really process it. I just process it as the existential questions as like the angst that comes from ask, asking existential questions. Oh, that's, that's certainly a huge part of it too. But I yeah. think like, well, I'll just go ahead and say it. You know, since we're at the time, if you want to read this movie on like a literal level, like, all, it, like you can read this, I think is like on a literal level and all the death stuff is like, like his internal monologue essentially. But I think at, at a surface level, we can read this as a knight who's come back from the crusades. He's traumatized and disillusioned by everything he's seen and done. He no longer gets any sauce in the church. He's traumatized and depressed. Like he's haunted by the specter of death. Literally, he's literally thinking about death almost constantly. And in particular, and in particular, there's a line at near the end when he finally reaches the castle in his home and reunites with his wife. Uh, and she asks him, like, she's like, you know, you're back from the Crusades. Are you sorry? You know, are you sorry about anything you've done? And he says, I'm not sorry about anything, but I am tired. And that is like an extremely, extremely like clinically depressed thing to say. He seems to get awfully involved in life throughout the course. He does, of he does, but he, but he, but he's also, but he also talks about how numb he is, how like he's looking for like one thing to do to like get to like finally give himself some meaning. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit where like where he's like so ridiculously touched by just like having a brief meal with somebody because the rest of his life feels so bleak. Yeah, uh, the milk and the strawberries, and he yeah, the, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, holds the milk and, and states that this is a treasured memory that he will have forever. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I don't know. Have you ever seen anyone else do that in the moment? Don't you think that's that way sometimes? Don't you ever just have like a really nice moment and you're like, well, you know, I'm going to try to remember this one. There's yeah, that- but I usually don't make a speech about it either. That's the other thing too. The blog is blog is kind of pretentious. Like that, that was a little surprising for me as well. That like he is kind of the most pretentious person in the movie. Like death is like much more lighthearted than he is. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I don't think I don't think Block makes a single joke, and Death definitely does. But yeah. then Death is not obviously as troubled by the things that are going on. He's, he's no. not the one that's going to. Die. No, if you want to talk about existentials, if Death is like, I've got a job and I do it, and I don't, I'm not really worried about anything. Right. He's like Sisyphus, happy, rolling mm-hmm. older up yeah. the hill. And... I don't know. They they both have a, a sense of kind of ironic humor in their wordplay with each other. I think some when you're saying about Block's character being sort of pretentious i think Mm -hmm. that right there is always a hallmark that something that a movie was once a play because Mm -hmm. it's just the way you write plays character the main character has monologues and and Mm -hmm. goes on about things it's just what you do in 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 a play in a stage play so so did you so did you play exactly yeah it did it did yeah Mm -hmm. exactly so i think sometimes what comes across in a film you're like why is this guy talking so much you know, because films mm-hmm. usually seek to portray real conversations, if you know what that's, I mean. That's true. This is an extremely, extremely wordy movie. It is. It is. And it, like we covered Casablanca before on the podcast, and it's the same thing. It was originally a stage play. They did adapt it to make it not quite as speechy, but it's it's a very talky movie in a good way, I yes. think. Mm-hmm. And, and th- this one is, too. It's got a really good even I don't speak Swedish at all. My mm-hmm. German allows me to understand a good number of the words that are being said, but yeah. um, so I can hear the rhythms of it, and I'm like, it sounds mm-hmm. good. It sounds like good speech. It it, it rhymes correctly and things like that. It was a contemporary but, of something like Bridge on the River Kwai, which I believe came out in the same year, and is also a surprisingly talky movie. Hmm. I, I saw it years and years ago. I don't remember it terribly well. I re- I remember liking it quite a bit. I mean, hmm. it's also possibly the case that like. Um, movies were still like heavily influenced by plays as a form and hadn't quite found the full visual language of cinema yet. Sure. Which I think this one is well known to be vis- revolutionary in, in telling the visual medium or showing the mm-hmm. visual medium in, in this way. 
the way that shots are blocked, the way that he uses light and shadow in a lot of different scenes. It, it's a really pretty movie. That's maybe saw, the stands out most to me. I saw a quote somewhere that was talking about, and this I've heard this said about other movies before, but every single shot could be a painting. Mm-hmm. Is, I, I kind of played around with that notion looking through the film, and it's it's not 100% true, but it is true-ish. Like a lot of the shots, where they're cast from and things like that, like they're from underneath and the guy's got his head turned and there's a skylight over his head, just, just mm. you know, in a quiet moment. Things like that go on through. I mean, obviously the opening with the beach is beautiful and there's a, yep. a long shot with the horse on the beach and things like that. And yeah, I could see that being painted on your wall. Another standout for me was the nighttime scene. And I think a, a lot of movies really lose their way when they're doing day for night which obviously have to do with the film stock when you're filming in black actually and bridge on the river Kwai was terrible about that that's the one yeah. thing i remember is there's a shot where they're planting explosive on on the bridge and swimming underneath and you can just see it's daylight and it's supposed yeah. to be night and i remember it taking me out of the movie when i was a little kid do you remember how this movie handled that no i was what, what was the scene that was at night i'm trying to remember it's kind of an overhead shot looking down and what you're looking down onto is basically the earth and the ground that's all black and the people walking around them are dressed lightly and one of them has a torch and so you don't have to worry about showing the skyline because you're you're pointing down at the ground so all you see is it's dark is that in the castle or no you're talking about an exterior that's, shot. that's when they camp right before they run into the thief who has the plague when oh, they're when, when death even, is playing for the third time i don't think i got that that was supposed to be nighttime i know what you're talking about you're talking yeah. about when they run into the guy and she wants to give him water and he says no and it, uh, before that when they're the establishing shot when it's looking down at the camp and and the yeah. the deliver is walking around with a torch and anyway it, it it stood out to me as being really really impressive that's another thing that leads to this sort of surreal unreality of the whole story it starts on the beach and ends on the beach but it also takes a course of one entire day starting at dawn and ending at the next dawn. does it really i didn't pick up on that yeah yeah i was paying pretty close attention the, the, the time sequence wasn't clear to me but yeah okay so it's the first day begins on the beach and and then they have a night they go through the forest and they have a night and then the next okay they go to the end they have lunch they go to the forest it becomes night uh sunset is when they're having the the milk and the strawberries dawn breaks the next day in the castle when uh, the unnamed servant girl sees light come through and death death walks through and then we have the end scene of the movie yeah that's right yeah yeah they were traveling through uh through night through the castle i forgot about that part yeah. Well, let's pause for a second about that and let's have our drink. Let's th- so let's talk about what we're having to drink for that show. I, as soon as I thought of it being Swedish, I was just like, I've never had Aquavit. So that's what I got. And it looks like you've got the same brand. It looks like you've gone with the wrong country as well, right? I have. Yeah. I mean, in our defense, they are traveling on the way to Elsinore, which... Elsinore, yeah. I think, is supposed to be in Denmark, though. Oh, well, mine's from Norway. My, my, sorry, my apologies. Are we not from the same... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, those yeah, are like the same bottle, I thought. Yeah, it looks like we have the same thing. Have you tried any of yours yet? No, I'm ju- I am just opened it, pouring it over some ice. I know that the Scandinavians differ upon what they think, whether or not you should do ice or chill. Oh. I, I didn't see anybody talk about ice, and a lot of them drink it like as a shot. The website for this one says you are supposed to drink it, drink it at room temperature. Yeah, see, that's how the Norwegians drink it, and they said the Swedes drink it cold, but almost everybody right. drinks it as a shot. Not although the Nor- no, the Norwegians drink it slowly, but at room temperature, and the Swedes do it as shots. And I they didn't, I didn't see what the uh, what the Danes and 
I don't know if the Icelanders. All right, so so we're trying one of each. Nice. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. yes, this week since I am a little sick, I am the designated driver of this pod. Oh, it's not actually unlike Uzo, is it? It's maybe not as pungent. It's not as strong of a taste as Uzo, but it's in that realm. I went to the same ABC store where I bought the Uzo last time, mm-hmm. and this was on the same shelf, directly above the Uzo. Did you get the sweats when you saw the bottle? <laughs> no, I, I actually still have some of the Uzo. It just oh. uh, you and Bill uh, enjoyed it a lot more than me. I think. Okay. I, I, I was hoping that the Uzo was your drink for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too, the secret of the Uzo. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that would have been great. No, it was for um, the Guns of Navarone, which takes place mm. in Greece. I, you got like a recipe for that one. Retsina? Yeah, we talked about Retsina in the podcast, but we didn't we didn't drink that. We had Uzo instead. We could have done that. Are you getting the uh the sherry barrel finish with this? So basically what this is is it's a neutral grain spirit like vodka, but it's seasoned with it has to be dill or caraway, and if it's Norwegian, no, sorry, if it were Swedish it would have to have fennel in it, which I feel like I can almost taste fennel, but maybe I don't know the difference between what dill, caraway and fennel. I I could think of what a fennel seed tastes like. But yeah, you've got a little bit of color to it, I'm guessing from the aging process, right? Didn't you say well, these are aged in sherry barrels. Uh, I believe right. the flavoring comes from uh, coriander and orange peel. And this one famously uh, is also sailed around the world and I think aged for 16 months in sherry barrels. Yeah, you put it on a ship from Scandinavia down to Australia and then back, meaning it crosses the equator two times. And that's why the brand is called Linea, means line. Or I don't know if that literally means equator, probably not, but I guess it means some line. But anyway, that's yeah, that's what we've got here. I don't mind it. I actually think it's kind of like a milder version of Uzo. It's a little tastier than Uzo to me. A little less. No, tastier is the wrong word. It's just a little less offensive than Uzo. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is both tastier and less offensive than Uzo. It's got a it's got a pleasing finish. Yeah, it's a little hard to describe. I I bet cold you probably are getting less flavor from it. Yeah, I would. But I really don't mind it. I, I, I could drink this. I kind of was picturing it the way Russians drink vodka. It's just like something to get drunk off of that doesn't have much of a taste. But that's not this at all. This is actually pretty good, I think. It's rather pleasant. So it means, I think it's pretty clear, it means water of life, which is, I think, a, like pretty much a literal translation of what whiskey means in Gaelic, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So somehow that idea got all over Europe. That things should... What's vodka mean? Vodka means water. So they just left off the life part. Yeah, I think so. And it may have, it may have had something like that in there but yeah vada means water so vodka i think just kind of means like little water or you know watery something that's the that's the uh, general etymology of it no i kind of like that that's just fine I was talking about the synopsis and as usual i didn't get through it even though I, I i i wrote down like about a two sentence synopsis an important part of the story i think that most people be familiar with from this is that there's a chess game which is essentially when death and the night meet at the beginning of the story the knight comes up with the idea of stalling death by playing chess against death and saying that, you know, he agrees that he won't take him until after the game is over. So that's going on in the background throughout the entire throughout the entire movie. And I don't know, does chess, are there any other symbols? That, why chess? So I was thinking about that a little bit because, yeah, because like it is a symbolic game, like being played like kind of on a symbolic level in this movie. That especially struck me when the part where Death is maybe or maybe not like, cheating, trying trying to trying to promo for information when he goes to confet to confessional and he mistakes death for the priest. And there's a right. bit where he's talking about his strategy. He says, "I have a combination of bishop and knight, 
and like a knight talking to a priest in that like talking about combining a bishop and knight kind of pained me like is there is there like a layer of symbolism here that i'm not quite getting on top of that i think it's a um i don't know what what the word for it is but it's it's like not quite symbolism i mean it is it is symbolic but it's not like you shouldn't read each character as a particular chess piece but they're sort of reminiscent of chess pieces I, I was just thinking about I was thinking about it while we were watching it. I know he was inspired by the old there's a medieval painting in Sweden of a, a, a skeleton, an emaciated skeleton figure playing chess with a knight. And yeah, and I mean like, and, that, and that's and that's practically directly referenced. Like when when Block challenges death, he says, I know that you're you know, you're you know, I know that you're a great player of games. I've seen all the pictures. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you know that he may have been going from that but maybe the characters are also pieces it's interesting there isn't really a game being played if you know what i mean by what the characters do they just mm -hmm. go on this sort of you know they're players in the game of life but not yeah in the, in the game of chess so much how you play the game of life is definitely a theme in this movie D absolutely yeah so definitely yeah. yeah like there, there there's a reasonably direct comparison being made between antonius block our knight and a character we haven't mentioned yet, Goff, who is kind of like the holy fool of this movie, who mm -hmm. is the other character in this movie that sees death, the other character in this movie that has visions. Yep. But mm -hmm. he is also a character who is, but whereas Block is a character who is tied to death because he's a knight, he's a killer, even if we don't actually see him engage in violence. Oh, whereas he, he also <laughs> sees Mary and Jesus. Yes, yeah, Yoff sees Mary and he's Jesus. He's the only character in the movie that Yoff, sees, and, he's the only character in the movie that sees Mary and Jesus, and he's the only mm -hmm. one that is saved at the end of the movie. So maybe uh, his wife, a, no, his wife, sir, his wife and child also survive. Right, but I think I think in a very biblical, old timey kind of way, a wife and child are like possessions of the man. Yeah. If you know Fair what enough. I mean, like you can read get, it that way. They get saved but, because but, they're his property. I mean, that's I don't know. I was just thinking well, everybody I, well, else. I think, well, but I think that, but I think it also means that he is tied to life in a way that Block isn't because he has his wife and he has a child with him, and he's also mm -hmm. like a player and he's earthy and connected to life in ways that Block is not. Yeah, the thing that jumped out to me immediately with those two was that he's named Joff and she's Mia, which translate into Joseph and Mary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although their son is like Matthias. Son is Mikhail, yeah. Mikhail. Not a, not a direct relation, but, you no. know. Yeah, not, not, not really. the seventh seal. Yeah, not, not really. Married together as a couple. Yeah. Who opens the, it would be, is it Gabriel that opens the seventh seal? Do we know? I, be Which, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Or, well, that's a good question. Gabriel's I usually Gabriel is, announces it, but I'm not sure if Gabriel does the uncorking proper. Yeah. I don't know that I watched this and I just love the movie as much as I've loved other things, but there is a lot to talk about. There's a lot of symbolism. Yeah, um, that ties into my biggest surprise, which I think I'll leave uh, for later. But yes. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, let's that, that, on the that, that is something else that was on my mind. As well. Should we maybe talk about some of the other players in the movie? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, let's. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let's do the cast of characters. So, we got Antonius Block. We talked about him a fair bit already. That's the night. Yeah, that's the night. We have Death, who who has a, a lot of presence, even if you you know you can't really call him like you know he doesn't really have a plot line or a character. Yeah, you know, he bounces off the others, but he's but he's a memorable guy. We've got the we have the players. So, you know, we have we have Yoff, who right. uh, yeah, his wife and his wife Mia, and, baby Michael, Michael, and then Michael, there's the right. other guy who is. I've got his yeah, I've got his name written down here somewhere. He also struck me because I think he has a because. Yes, one of the few people in this movie who has like a who has a personal name and a surname. I sense he might have like given it to himself to put on airs and uh, mac on women, as we see him do. Yeah, everybody else is like there's there's plog. Well, Antonius yeah. Block. Has, well, has we, we did him first. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, right. But I mean, he's got a surname. He's got two. Yeah. Names. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we yeah we have Antonius Squire uh, Jens. I think is it pronounced Jens? He he's yeah, it's like Jens or Jens. Jens or something like that. He's yeah. my. I think he's my favorite character. I love watching that guy whenever he's on screen. I mean, yeah, I so really like Max Winsido is terrific. Mostly oh, just absolutely. his face and his delivery. Yeah. Everything about his voice absolutely. is spectacular. Mm -hmm. The character of Jons has like a has like a humor about him that just I enjoy his scenes a lot. Yeah, so he's plays really interestingly. Yeah, because has this world weary aspect about him, and he's always uh, getting a read on people and predicting what they'll say, and he's usually right. Yeah. Right. So he yeah. So he, so he's interesting. He, in, in some ways, he's kind of the worldliest character because uh -huh. like what what uh, because when when he's like when he's interacting with Block, like he kind of plays the knave. He plays the fool. You know, he's kind of like. A puncturing, you know, blocks uh, like more highfalutin tendencies. Right. But then when he's talking to like the, the earthier, like lower status people, then he's kind of like the earth, like the witty, urbane one in contrast to them. Uh huh. Yeah. I think he, he has the capacity to be both things. He sort of performs mm -hmm. as a swing between the two states. It's definitely the 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 character that has the most outstanding performance. I think. There's really interesting decisions he makes. Like every time he and Block share a scene together and Block walks off, he kind of hisses at him like a cat when he turns. <laughs> I have no idea what that's about, but it's it's fascinating to watch. I think the direction, um, those three, they come across so well. Um, Antonius, uh, Max von Sydow, uh, mm -hmm. the actor who plays Death, Bengt Karat. Yeah. Is the guy who plays Death, and then, like we said, Jons, the Squire. I think all three mm -hmm. of them are really just they're, they're a lot is being gotten out of the actors because I think the director's doing a terrific job. He's really like, yeah. I think, guiding them in the choices that they're mm -hmm. making. I mean, if it was just one person in the movie, I'd say, oh, that guy's a brilliant actor. I hate to use this; it seems like kind of a trite example in in light of how how prestigious this film is. But like Quentin Tarantino's movies, a couple of the best ones, you can see he's just getting everything out of the actors. Like really getting it's it's some of their most iconic performances of their entire careers. A lot of them, and I think it. Has oh yeah, to do with oh yeah. I was, I was I was <clears throat> I was struck very early on. Like there's a bit yeah. Like I think it's like on the seashore uh, when Antonio's block like reflexively kneels down to pray, and then like you can see him like. Like making an effort to like break that habit. Like was doing a tremendous amount with like just the movement of his arms in that in that little bit. What else is he from? Max von said, I know he's had a, a long career. Was he in like the Omen? Did he uh, yes, I believe I believe he was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I know I remember he was in the new Star Wars. That was one of the final um, parts of his career. I was about to say how quickly they forget. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I remembered that, but I know that's not one of the. It, you know, um, Minority Report, Flash Gordon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just pulled up. I just pulled up his Wikipedia. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. He, oh, he was very busy in the eighties. Yeah, who he was, was he? Was he uh, named? Oh, I think he was. That's interesting. I haven't seen that in so long. I don't really remember it very well, but that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's Ming in that. Yeah, and he's also in like Pawn of the Barbarian. Okay, Lynch's yeah, Dune. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he got how around quite a bit. How could you forget him from Judge Dredd? I've never seen Judge Dredd. That's how. That, yeah, that's how we do. That's how. Don't tell. Don't tell Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these Stallone Judge Dredd. I do have to make sure we get the right. Oh, he was, oh, he was in Game of Thrones, apparently. So many, yeah, so many, yeah. So Max was seen a long and and uh, prestigious and noteworthy career. Yeah, definitely. And he was certainly the only actor I recognized in this. And it's oh, really, it's really amazing to me. And this is common with people from Scandinavia, but his English is like impeccable when he's in movies. And just to have been to to have been from another country and to be able to speak both of the both languages—that's such an impressive thing. 
that people from Northern Europe do a lot of the time is speak English so well. Maybe he's he's multi multilingual. He speaks, I think, Italian and French fluently as well, and was also in The Exorcist. That's another big. Oh, is that what I was thinking of? Not The Omen. I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. My bad. I, I'm not super familiar with that movie. Actually, I've only seen The Exorcist one time, and it was a long time ago. Uh, there's there was... unnamed girl. I was very curious about like what her deal was. Yeah, like, like, like what what the point of her being in the movie is. Like the scene where she's introduced is is definitely like fairly important, but then like her coming uh, along on the rest of the movie is seems kind of marginal. What about the fact uh, that she never speaks except for the last line of the movie? Yeah, does that does that? Well, oh. not last line technically. What I did mean, she say? what did she say? I must have. It is over. Huh. Yeah, or or it is finished, depending on your translation. Oh, right. right. See, that's where the that's where the question. So, how do we all watch this? I watched it on the streaming service formerly known as HBO Max uh, via the Criterion Collection. Me too. On Max. I watched it on uh, Amazon. Oh, uh, was it was it also like the Criterion version? Do you remember? Did they get the like the logo up front? I'm not sure. I don't think I saw that, but I couldn't swear to it. Yeah, because yeah, because I'm pretty sure I remember it being like yeah, being like it is finished rather than it is over. So I'm wondering if there was if it was a different translation print, possibly. I suspect the it is finished is the correct translation because that is one of the Jesus on the cross uh, statements. Mm-hmm. Is it? I don't remember that. But I've recently learned that my understanding of the New Testament is extremely limited. Like I went to a, I went to a comedy show the other day as a Jewish comic, and he was talking about the Beatitudes. And he, <laughs> he was like, you know, the Beatitudes, the one where he says, blessed are, blessed are the... And I was like, Oh, right. Beatitudes, blessings. Yeah, that would be what that is. I have no idea. Like, I just never went to church. I, just, I went through a Bible phase, but it was all reading the Old Testament. I never never got into the New Testament. I am aware that it, there's one book of Revelation, singular, not Revelation. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that uh, it's cavalry, not Calvary, when it comes to war. That is one of my pet peeves. Thank yes, you. that's a pet peeve of mine as well, when people talk about Calvary. There is sort of a fleeting L in that word as well, anyway. Only villains would speak of Cal- the Calvary. Villains. Yeah. So what uh, So what did you guys think of the translation? Did you notice anything being up with the translation? You know, again, my, my Swedish certainly would not, uh, it's certainly not up to the task of comparing that at all. Like, when you're watching a, a movie in a language you don't understand, it can be very, very easy to just kind of tune out the actual dialogue when you're focusing on the subtitles or maybe that's just my problem. I think I know, like I said before, I think I know just enough German that I can tell what people are talking about, especially when I see subtitles. I'm like, Oh, this is the line I hear. I hear a couple of words where I'm like, yes, this is what's actually on the screen. And this is what they're saying. Like I, I'm mentally comparing the two things over and like, and I pick up a couple of words like yog means, means I and things like that. Like I started learning some, a couple of basic words so I could kind of follow what was happening through the, not, not follow what was happening, but follow the dialogue and not, not have that effect that you're talking about. Like if I watch something in Korean, I have no idea what anybody's saying at all. Yeah. yeah. So I just kind of tried to keep an ear out for like how people's names were pronounced. That's as far as I know. There's a couple. I remember I watched a movie that was Danish one time and it was during Christmas and people kept saying, Glede Jule. And I was like, oh, that means Merry Christmas. Glad you. <laughs> That, that I can kind of remember that. To actually, what inspired me to pick this film was I heard a podcast about it. Uh, BBC's there's a podcast they do that's just they take a random subject and they do an hour long episode about it. And they did one about the Seventh Seal, and they were talking about some of the Swedish dialogue. It's very, very good. Like when when you hear it broken down, like the choices that are being made in the words, it's it's finely written dialogue for the film. It 
you know, like we said, it comes from a play, and I think it shows. Yeah, and I think like at least like some of the actors like like weren't in the play, right? Or at least had, or at least had like worked together. Tremendously difficult thing to judge anytime you're Extremely. getting a foreign language product, how it flows in its own language, and how that impacts the presentation of it. Um, I think so. I think so. It's it is it is hard. I think it sounded like it flowed well. I remember when rap was a fairly new thing, right, in America. And it started to get a little better over the course of about 10 years. The lyrics started to flow a little better. And I didn't really understand what was happening until I heard the first time I ever heard rap in Spanish and French. And I could hear that it wasn't flowing correctly. And over time, all of a sudden, I started hearing French and Spanish rap. And I was like, they figured it out, too, because it was a different process for their language to adapt the, the words to the music. And I could tell when they got it right, if you know what I mean. Even though I'm not no, a yeah, native you. speaker, like I could hear when they were getting get, getting the the uh, when it was scanning properly. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think you can hear when somebody's speaking another language and it's got the right music to it. You know, if you're if you're right. well, yeah, no. with the language, but especially because Swedish, not the most different from English language there is in the world. It's in the same sort of neck of the woods and language families. You know, weirdly, that makes me think of Eddie Izzard, who's famously one of the few comedians who has performed in multiple languages, which is mm -hmm. kind of a extremely difficult achievement, if you think about it, because the laugh lines are a different yes. place. You have That's to structure mm -hmm. the jokes differently. It's just... I saw a stand-up comic who was French perform his entire thing, his entire bit in, in English, and it was like, watching a dog walk on his hind legs it was a very impressive performance like it was he was funny like he was funny in english and, and you were just like i kept thinking oh, this must be hilarious when he does it in his native language because it's good in english and it was a it was a very impressive thing to watch i think one other character we should talk about at least a little uh is a uh, reval uh, i'm yeah that's a, that's a guy's okay. pronunciation i did miss oh, sure oh i wanted to make you're bringing up the characters and i did want to make one observation before i forget about it Mm -hmm. The way they pick up characters throughout the course of the of the of the movie reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. Like they keep meeting, they keep meeting these people and they keep adding them to the sort of coterie of people that's going through the and then they take this journey together. And I think that may not be an accident because they're both allegories. Mm -hmm. And there may be something about allegory. I mean, Canterbury Tales is well, they don't really pick them up over the journey, do they? They're sort of all at the beginning of the journey, but mm -hmm. perhaps characters that are allegories it, it kind of makes sense to sort of accrue them as you go so that you focus on them one by one but i don't know and maybe maybe there's something to that connection anyway you were talking about revol right is that his name? yes yeah revol or yeah or at least that's or at least that's how it's written I, I, yeah i might be pushing the pronunciation but yeah so he, he's a he's an interesting character he just comes in and out of the movie so randomly mm. we first we first meet him uh like as a thief you know he's like going through a house where presumably like, you know, the owner's side of the plague, and he's, like, looting the body. Uh, and Yuns comes across him, and uh, not only does he disapprove of uh, of the grave robbing, uh, he see he takes much greater offense to the fact that Raval was apparently, at the time... Inspired them to go on the before. crusade in the yes, yeah, he was a priest. He used to be a priest. Yeah, in point of fact, yeah, like, like they sometimes refer to him as they call me Dr. Mirabilis, which I meant to look up. Like, that rings a bell, but I don't actually remember what it means at the top what of my did, head. What did they say about Dr. Mirabilis? The subtitles in my version of the movie had, had Young's calling calling him calling him that, calling him a Dr. Mirabilis, but I don't remember what that means exactly. I, forgot I don't remember what that means either. I think I, rem I think I saw that, and I was thinking that, like you said, that rings a bell. But maybe I'm just thinking of Annis Mirabilis. I don't know. But uh, I, I believe it means he's a theologian. 
Yeah, uh, well, that would, makes uh, sense. You sent. Okay, that's why I remember. Okay, there's a novel by that name, which is what I'm thinking of. Okay. Oh, uh, and apparently there was something that. Okay, so apparently that was like an epithet uh, applied to Roger Bacon. Ah, so I guess he's like, yeah, you know, so I guess like, so I guess, so I guess that's the medieval version of look at the big brain on bread. <laughs> <laughs> a yep, comparison yep. can be made between these two words. I, I think, I think we see a remake uh, on the horizon. Wasn't Roger yeah. Bacon famous for being the last person to have like read everything? Yeah, to have to mm-hmm. know everything. Yeah, I think he's one of the people who's cited as being the last to know everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds about him or Erasmus yeah. or somebody like that around that same time. I think too heavily. Oh, Bacon's, Bacon's <laughs> before that. Bacon's well before Erasmus, I think, but still. But yeah, so we we meet we meet Raval as a as as a thief and a scavenger. We are told that he used to be a priest. Jan spares his life in that scene, and, and he then goes on to turn up later in a tavern, tormenting uh, the fool of the the players, Yoff. Yeah, he shows up um, kind of kind of like walrus man and the doctor in the cantina scene when they like try to get Luke <laughs> killed for no reason. Like that's what I was that's what I was thinking. They're in that bar and the poor guy ends up dancing and he'd like, you know, for in, in order to live. It seemed like something from a Western, you know, where you're like dance, pilgrim, and like shooting at the guy's feet. And it seemed it yeah, seemed like Yeah, very much so. People must right, have so, thought right. of that when they did that. And, and winds up with a horrible facial scar, yeah. That's the actor's scar, right? No idea. I don't think so. You don't think? I mean, it looks real. It looks the like Squire a Squire like marked him up. Oh no, no, yeah. I'm sorry. The I squire. thought he cut his eyes out until talking, the next time we saw him. I'm it, talking about but... the Squire. The Squire has a wicked. Oh scar no, 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 across, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yudzo's scar looks, looks totally real. Yeah. It looks real. Yeah, no, not not what happens. To yeah, like yeah, he's got like a divot like along his hairline. No, 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 that no, looks no, pretty yeah, real. That's that's makeup. But I'm talking about yeah. the Squire himself has yeah. a gnarly scar that really adds some character. It seems like exactly the kind of sword scar that you would have if you were that character it's perfect but i think that that's something throughout the movie these faces part of it is swedish people right they're sort of i think famous for having beautiful physiognomy right but mm. these faces are amazing every single i saw see no particular is like yeah like like every Max time the light is just yeah. like is per like you you just would like want to look at his face because it's I don't know if I'd say the guy's handsome but it's just a really interesting face yeah the interesting is good yeah there was one particular scene where like he shot at such a particular angle that like he looked like a, like a big he looked like a muppet he looked like Guy Smiley <laughs> or one of the muppets with like the huge the huge emphasized jaw <laughs> wow which reminds me of something which we haven't talked about yet which is death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey who when I was a kid. It just seemed like, yeah, you know, he's he's like a creepy Swedish guy. That that makes sense for death. I didn't know that was a reference to something. Like it just seemed it just seemed appropriate to me. Yeah. But, whereas I I did recognize the reference, even though I had not seen this movie at that point. Okay. Yeah, same. That is a hundred percent a fake scar. Oh the one, wow, the one the one right. on the squire. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Wow. Shout out to shout that's, out to their uh, that is their that is putty and a a shaved scalp where they put the putty over the top it's of it. great it, i don't maybe yeah. it wouldn't work if it was a colorized if it was a color mm. it, it's terrific yeah. in black and white it looks it, very it, it is very effective and it, yeah. it lends credence to him it in does. that uh, apparently he's a pretty famous famous actor himself and was also famed for playing very different roles like this is yeah i looked up for- i looked up these actors because i just thought they were so good and they're just all over swedish film but not Except for Max von, Max von Sydow, I don't think in, in anything that you would have seen. Both of the women who are in the movie, sorry, there's three of them. And they're all Four. very, there's there's the, two, there's the two wives, there's the mute girl. Oh, the wife. Three wives, the wife. I forgot about yeah. Antonius, Antonius Block's wife, right? I forgot yeah. about her. She's and the witch. Oh, and the witch. Oh, and the witch. The, and the witch. Yeah, yeah the witch yeah, is we're enough. talking about briefly. Yeah, the witch. Yeah, the 
I thought um, that scene, the scene with the witch, the second one where she's actually being put up to burn, to burn, which is coherent. The yeah. emotional content of the movie just completely shifted gears for me there. It was very intense. Like that scene wasn't was very intense, I thought, for some reason. And it, it changed how I saw the rest of the movie. At first, it was sort of, you know, there's these long scenes with them doing their play and doing music. It's kind of goofy. There's mm-hmm. like a goofy thread to it. Like, and, it, you know, some of the death scenes, even though the night's lines are intense they're pretty they're played for a little bit of humor but i thought with the witch burning scene it just like all of a sudden completely changed the way i felt watching the movie and I mean, then you can't really do a funny witch burning scene no well you, you, you can't I, you could. I can't. Not, not in this but, movie but yeah but this but this one is played for well this would be a really horrible thing to see and a really mm-hmm. horrible thing to have happen and I think it, it came across very, it was intense, I thought. I thought that part- so I'm going to circle back here a little bit to a pin we set earlier, which is talking about how I read this as a very modernist movie. Okay, go ahead. Tell me what that. So and by that, I mean, like, I feel like this is a movie very much about this, is, this kind of character study of block. I, I think it's probably not that too extreme to say that, like, everything in the movie ultimately reflects on or revolves around block or his state of mind. And so this is like kind of a psychological and, and, and this is like a, a, a very psychologically realist reading of like a night back from the Crusades, even though this is a movie with like where, where multiple characters have visions, you know, have ecstatic or, or, or terrific visions. This is not a movie that has a lot of awe of the divine or a sense of the numinous. And so a big part of that is even though Yoff himself, his faith in like, you know, the Virgin Mary and Jesus and all that is kind of his saving grace. The church itself is pretty consistently depicted as, as a negative. All the people we see associated with the church, there's the flagellants who like explicitly show up to be a huge downer and disrupt the performance. I literally wrote the note. These flagellants are a big Debbie downer. They're, like having, <laughs> they're having this great thing. Yeah. And then the flagellants come yeah. through and it's like, Oh come on! Yeah. You know? yeah, but it's a really fast way to end any stage production is to yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. have yeah, the yeah. plague-ridden flagellants walk through wailing. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Really kills the buzz. Yeah, uh, we have two scenes of like you know church knights uh, like you know tormenting and then so me- killing the witch, and uh, and specifically twice in the movie death is mistaken for a priest. Yeah, I think that is like a really direct like summation of the, of this movie's view of the church. It's bad. It's a downer. It's it it is a negative of a life sucker. And so that so I think that's how that's a mark that that is a mark of like this show's modernist perspective. It is very much in a a god is dead. You know, you I can see like an earlier version of this movie about a knight who's lost his faith, but like the church would at least be but like there would at least be the possibility of the church being a comfort or a sucker to this character. And that is yeah. not at all possible in this movie. Do you think that the person we encounter that the squire talks to for that piece of time is a member of the church, the one that's painting? No, he's probably uh, an artisan that's been hired. No, 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 yeah, I think he's like, I would think, you know, he's a janitor on the Death Star. You know, he's he's <laughs> working for the church, but I think he's a religious. He, he had a lot of really important information to pass on <laughs> to include, uh, you know, the fact that the plague was coming. The symptoms yes. of the plague, what happens with the plague, uh, what what people are afraid of, what's happening in the country, uh, people dancing, people flagellating themselves. It, there's a lot there. Sure, yeah. sure. That guy was very helpful in terms of like laying out uh, of, of making sense of the film. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I was interested in what your definition of modernism is, but I think I think I understand what you're talking about. You're you're settling. You're you're talking about modern. You're you're going back to like early turn of turn of the century types of novels, like Virginia Woolf era. Yes, like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think asking the God question is exactly that. That's the time period. So to me, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the yeah, second yeah. thing. Like the... I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying you're, you're not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I think this work is rich enough to have multiple interpretations. You're focusing on the character of Antonius Block. I, when I saw it, I'm having a conversation with Ingmar Bergman. I'm looking for what he thinks about the world and about God and about life and what happens when we die and why. Why is faith? Why are we sent into the world? to have faith instead of just being shown that there's god like his questions about all those things almost like theodicy it's not quite theodicy but you know it's a similar kind of question like why would god do things this way when he could do it a different way sort of questions but that's interesting because the way you're talking about it with depression and about block and stuff is a completely different way to approach it than how i was watching the film it may have had it may have something to do do you remember the bathroom at my parents house that had all the new york <laughs> yeah. times articles on the wall yeah. there yeah. are these pictures by um i can't remember the Hirsch, artist's name Hirsch, hirschfeld hirschfeld i was going to say hirschberg okay right. yeah i think al hirschfeld i can't remember but anyway nina just remember the nina's style of his cartoons and whoever the people that own the house before us cut out a bunch of pages from the style section and, i think it might just have been like arts yeah i think it's actually arts and put these all over the wall and one of them was a little blurb and it and it said ingmar bergman is still asking the god question so i remember looking at that as like a six-year-old and wondering who's ingmar bergman you know like one like thinking about this for years and years so when i watch this movie I'm picturing Ingmar Bergman the whole time, like just as the as the generator of this film and the person who's asking me this question. And maybe that's just the perspective that got nailed into my head by by seeing the bathroom like that. The other day, Karina put on this movie about gold in my ear, the one with uh, Helen Mirren. And uh, we, she, I was I walked in the room looking at it and, and I was like, oh, I know. I know. It looks just like gold in my ear. And she's like, you mean from the picture in your parents' bathroom? And I was like, yep. yep. That's, that was like that's exactly. It was very distinctive, you know, right, right by Al Pacino and near Robert Picardo. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I think that sounds about right. Yeah. I, I, I would love you to just isolate that and make that your ringtone or something, just so we can have that out of context quote of "Who's a gold in my ear?" Oh, from your parents' bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's a little non sequitur if you don't know me, but everybody who knows me knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's I, a, I, it's a very memorable bathroom. Yes, I yeah, preserved I, I, it. I, I, it had gotten damaged over the years, so I had to get rid of the lower half of it all. But I took photos before I did so, so it is preserved for posterity. But we put a veneer over and saved the top half, so we do still have that in the bathroom at the old. Oh, house. nice! Yeah, I, like that. But no, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, no, I agree with you, Dave. Yeah, this is definitely like again, this is this is definitely like a movie made to be. There's a lot in this movie, and so there there are a lot of different lenses you can bring to view on it. So I think I think that's certainly like you know a a, a valid way of uh, reading. Well, it's, reading it's interesting. It's interesting you say that about modernism because. Like I said earlier in the pod, we were talking about uh, Canterbury Tales and the Decameron. And the Decameron is like pretty famously sort of a proto-modernist text, right? Because it's it's examining the plague and how everybody just sees the world as godless because of the plague. And so this this movie is about the plague. It's very easy for people to lose their faith and become despairing during a plague. And I saw something else that someone was talking about with this movie. I was just, like I said, I was just approaching it as existentialist questions and God is dead in the early 20th century and stuff. And then I realized, but it's also 1958. Mm -hmm. It's 
the first couple of years of knowing that the world could be destroyed by nuclear weapons. And so you've got this, it's like the plague. It's like, how could God exist in a world where the Holocaust just happened and we all could die tomorrow because of nuclear weapons? It's a different kind of existential question. Very similar, we did the podcast about Godzilla and it's got that, that's the theme of the whole movie is like, there's this inexorable force that could destroy us all. I don't know. If, well, it's called Godzilla now that I think of it. But anyway, I don't know if God is a theme in that film, but probably not. But in this one, I think I think that's part of the dread of this movie. You just blew my mind there a little bit, Dave. Something that jumped out to me is that the squire does at one yes. point refer to himself as a modern man, uh, which mm. oh, did, okay. did make me chuckle a bit. And I think he probably is much more a modern man, at least in terms of his viewpoints, than the the knight himself. Roger Bacon would have been described the same way. The knight's view is that he wants to speak to the devil to, to find out about God, whereas the squire is more of the opinion that none of this actually matters and you should just enjoy life while you can. Right. And it seems to me like the knight figures that out a little bit with, with why do I want to say the watermelons? The strawberry scene. <laughs> There's no watermelon. The strawberry and something else, milk. Milk. Yep. Which drinking milk out of a bowl with a bunch of other people seems like a really weird... Yeah, when she was talking about the bowl, like, I'll bring you a bowl. I'm like, oh, a bowl of the strawberries. Says, no, just a big old terrine of the, uh, the milk. Big old thing of milk. Let's all... Uh, like think a, about the, yeah. Pretty great uh, way to spread plague, huh? Thank you. Yeah, I was I was actually just about to go uh, there. It depends uh, on the, it, this particular plague, the Black Death, no. But no, yes, no, but yes, things yeah, like cholera was, would be a terrible yeah, idea yeah. to share a terrine of milk. Multi plague, yeah. 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 So, that yeah, that was kind of on my mind. Because in the scene immediately before that, that is the, the root and tootin', you know... Uh, uh, dan you know, dance gesture scene in the bar where Raval's tormenting Yuff, and uh, Yuff manages to get himself out of that scene, but he steals the bracelet that Raval took off the plague-stricken body, and mm -hmm. he goes straight to his wife and gives her that bracelet, and then she, you know, then she pours a big old bowl of milk that every single person in that scene drinks from. And I was wondering, uh, like, I was wondering if, like, if, if, if again, if you read this on like. The, the surface level action of the movie could you read that as they caught the plague in that scene and that's why they all die in the castle i but think that i think doesn't really they track with, that doesn't, but that doesn't track with you and mia not having the plague, not dying of the plague i think when they die of plague in the castle i think the tips that off is when they get there the wife has a um antonius block's wife has a what's the word a boobo Booba. Like she has a boobo on her on her face, and I was thinking, I, I was, oh, why didn't why didn't they get an actress who didn't have a gigantic blemish on her face? But considering the lengths they went to with the scar and the other things they've done about faces, I think that that was not an accident, and I think that's meant to this that's to say this is where they're getting the plague, but or maybe they got it from Raval uh, because. But they have Joseph and Mary had, had left by the time. Yes, because yes, because Revolt's third scene is he shows up dying to the plague. I thought of that, but it, so and I, I don't think that's necessarily incorrect, except that they go to great lengths to not go and give him water. Like a lot of time is spent on they they avoid contacting him, which doesn't necessarily mean they didn't get it from him. But I thought that's what that meant was they didn't get it from him. They managed, but you know maybe we're being a little too literal about the about the plague in this. I don't know if. I, I mean, so I mean, if you want to talk about modernist readings, uh, I think we are all intimately familiar with the communicability of a plague and uh, the efforts one must take to uh, feel feel safe about not getting it. Yeah, or or like maybe some people won't take any lengths mm -hmm. to to keep from getting the plague. Yeah, well, I'll tell you all what. Right, so, I think I think if it had been as deadly as the Black Death, I think people would have been wearing their freaking masks and getting and getting a vaccine. I think there would have been. You, a, you, 
you'd hope so. higher acceptance rate, but you'd hope so. All right, sorry. So I'm counting down like the number of proposed remakes of this movie. We have we have the Star oh, Wars remake. That's we a have good the one. Western remake. We have the extremely modern dress remake in the COVID era. Uh, and there's one oh the Quentin Tarantino remake. The Quentin Tarantino remake. Yeah. So it's, it's at least four. Is that five? The Swedish. Time. Swedish. Do you speak it? <laughs> what does your wallet say? say. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one that says Grim Reaper. <laughs> Speaking of which, that was does a this look like which dead witch storage, my good man? <laughs> does it said dead vicar storage? <laughs> Pursuit storing dead vicars is not my <laughs> storing dead vicars ain't my. Maybe that's getting kept because it's funny, but I feel like we're going to get canceled or whatever. <laughs> Mild surprise. Uh, wh- wh- how far back do you guys think the term Grim Reaper would go? Huh. I was yeah, that see, morphic personification of death become popularized. Yeah, it really uh, seems like, like it's right around the Black Death. So yeah, I feel like funny. Yeah, I feel like it could have been coined at any point. Really, the personification of death is really interesting. I actually went into it a little bit, and it goes way, way back. We got, we got that on tarot cards. We got how old are they? Tarot cards actually date to the late 1800s at the earliest. Really? Yeah, it's a whole, it's a thing that people made up like fake, you know, around the same time as the the theosophists and stuff Mm. like that, you know, so. Grim Reaper, the term Grim Reaper dates back to 1847 is the earliest use of it. But there's a whole bunch of stuff about death that goes way back. And obviously each culture deals with it very differently. For instance, the Norse had this whole different character specifically for plague that would come and bring either a broom or a rake, depending on whether anybody was going to survive the plague. And it looked like the Grim Reaper, essentially. But I thought it was interesting that he chose the sort of traditional... Uh, no, yeah. we, we haven't talked about the smith and his wife. Right. But yeah, the, the, the smith and his wife and the scene where Smith catches up with his wife. It, it is, by the way, an hour into the movie. Yes. We, we get everyone assembled and walking through the woods, which I, it's like... Everything is a build up to that point where everyone is together walking through the woods on the way to, uh, you know, Tony Block's castle or whatever it is. All right. Sopranos remake. Got it. There's a witch. There's a witch. They end up at yeah. the castle. How am I not going to be reminded of Wizard of Oz? Come on. But you have this this comedy scene where the Smith catches up with his wife who's run off with the leader of the comedy troupe. Right. They have this whole back and forth with each other, with the... Um, the squire providing running commentary on how the wife is going to ingratiate herself back with her husband and incredible color commentary. Yeah. Honestly, the whole death of Jonas Scott part is really remarkable. I feel like, Uh, yes, I I was going to bring that up too. I mean, that's the only, that's the only person that death kills. Does he kill anybody? He actually kills Jonas Scott. Like I was not expecting that at all. I thought it was an accidental death and death was just there to read his soul. But he kills him. It's a straight up Bugs Bunny routine is what it is. It really is. It really is. Which is what I was saying. There's a lot of silliness through the first hour and five minutes. And then all of a sudden the witch burning scene. I was like, oh, this is upsetting. (laughs) Like, I I don't know if I like this part, but. I mean, enjoy it. I, I liked it. It was good. Does death do that in any other incarnation of death? Does he actually bring about the death of the person? I don't remember seeing that in anything. I mean, you guys know Terry Pratchett way better than me. In fact, yeah, I've, no, never, yeah, read, yeah, I've Terry, never read yeah. any of the Terry Pratchetts that have death. So the only one no, I read you should do for your show one day, because Mort is a great book. Um, okay. And it, a lot of that gets into this, so I don't want to spoil any of it, but... Uh, there is a code there for death. So yeah. yes, the Terry Pratchett death is a, is a bystander. I read the like, Piers Anthony. I read the Piers Anthony either. ones about death. 
where um, somebody he gives the power to be death to like a new person, and that's the whole book. Yeah. Oh boy, do you want to do one of those with the pod sometime? I'm sure there's a lot. I thought those, those were. I thought those were actually pretty cool. I enjoy, I read that one, and I read the one about fate. I think it was. Yeah. I, I read. I think I read almost all of them. I think he's gone back and done a couple more. But yeah, I read like the main sequence of like seven or so, and I remember liking them at the time. But I have to. I probably have to stress at the time. No, I thought it was. I, I mean, I was not that. I wasn't like a little kid. I was in my twenties when I read them. I enjoyed them. They're, really, I read those in like junior high. Yeah, no, they, you totally could. They, they would be they would be good for that age. I used to let what was available on books on tape at the library determine what I read. So just like walk around. I was like, oh, all right, I'll read this. I don't know why I picked that. I have no idea how I ended up reading that. But I did want to mention how Swedish babies go porky pig all the time. Apparently, that's very. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, 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 you're already it's clear. Yes, you know right, what yes, porky yes. Thank, you, is. thank you for making me remember. Yes, thank you for making me remember the baby's naked ass, Dave. <laughs> Honestly, I have to say, Joe, when I think of porky pig, the phrase porky pigging it, uh huh, about that time we went to the beach. God damn it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a big ringtone. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I just wanted to make sure to remember that I want to talk about my favorite shot in the film, which is the, the big lunch scene where uh, they're enjoying this, their communal strawberries and milk, and maybe I'll give each other the plague. And Block is holding forth about how great it is and how wonderful life is, and the coolest moment is in heart forever is an example of the goodness of, uh, of sweet, sweet life. And, like, off on the left on a pole is, like, the skull mask from the earlier performance, just hanging out, reminding everybody, hey, death's here, what up? A little memento mori while you're eating mm -hmm. your strawberries and milk, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you think that Block and uh, Yo's wife were flirting before that? There seemed to be like a weird boundary crossing between the women and the men all through the movie. It seemed to me like they have this guy that like sleeps in their trailer with them. And there seemed to be a weird kind of a boundary crossing there. And then I think that's you know, called being poor. Yeah. Yeah. But didn't it seem like there was a little bit of a like an almost like a like a romantic tension there. And, and then obviously he runs off with another guy's wife and then. She comes back and is like perfectly willing to just negotiate with these other, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's just a Swedish thing. Like maybe I've, I've there's definitely a little bit of bohemian. Well, the, the unnamed girl is saved from the thief and then he just sort of declares that she shall be his servant. Right. Uh, you know, he may have a wife, but he doesn't know it's been 10 years since he saw her. She's probably dead. And we never learn whether that's the case for the squire. Correct. Well, I had two other subjects I wanted to talk about. What do you, what do you guys know about the dance macabre as like a concept? in world civilization like what I, all i know is the stephen king book i read it and, and i really don't have a whole lot of memories about where that comes from yeah i know it's like an artistic motif that comes out right. of the black plague but like that's just kind of you know cultural osmosis i don't know it, much it is specifically it. rooted in the in the black death huh uh, that's what I think. Again, that's on the top of my dome. I could be wrong, but I... you know, now that you mention it, that it's probably something from the Decameron. But I thought maybe you guys would know a little something about that. You're, you're, you guys are both, I would say, better medieval scholars than myself. Well, thank you for thinking too highly of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really don't know. Speaking of which, the history is a little garbled up in this film. There are no witch burnings at this point in history, in the 1300s. There are no, I think, flagellants didn't exist in this part of the world. We were just talking about it, but the Crusades are kind of anachronistic for the time of the Black Death. At least the Crusades is understood, you know, as we talk about them, the first, second, that that's all 300 years before. There were Crusades into Eastern Europe at this time, and I, I don't know if, if it's explicitly, he talks about going to the Holy Land in the movie. Do you remember whether that's mentioned? 
Or is he maybe his squire does talk about going to the Holy Land and dealing with fleas and lice and various other things. And I sort of thought they actually explicitly called it out as being one of the crusades to the Holy Land, which which would be anachronistic, which would not be correct for this time period. But there were crusades into places like Lithuania and Poland and, and Eastern Germany and things like that, which were essentially still still pagan countries at that time. Uh, another thing about the the, set, the witch burning scene that kind of struck me was who knows whether it is an intentional piece of staging or not, whether that's just sort of accurate. But just the uh, the witch, like in her second lucid scene, talking about like constantly being like watched over by the devil and like her close cropped hair, kind of put me in, in mind of Joan of Arc for some reason. Who oh, absolutely. herself did want to because herself did kind of want to burn. She's a little bit of a Christ figure, right? Isn't she kind of up on a cross before she gets burned? And so anyway, she's up there suffering for a long time. And there's a there's a like I said before, there's a Marian there's a Marian Jesus mm. image, and there's a there's a woman who's up there burning, and a, a little bit of a I mean, there's always a little bit of a Jesus thing with with witch burnings, right? Because it's a sacrifice and a public execution like that. But I don't. But know. it's also paganistic too, in a lot of ways. It is. There's a well, lot to read into but this. But it's a burning of the pagan, right? It's a destruction of the pagan. Sacrificing people like that is pagan. Kind yeah. of a wicker man kind of thing. I don't there's so much happening in this movie. I think you can there is. It, there it, is. A dozen different ways. There really is. You know, it's really interesting, but I noticed one, there's only one distiller of aquavit in the entire United Kingdom, according to my according to what I read. That may not be true, but it's called Psychopomp. Wow. And I thought that was really wow. interesting because death obviously is the great psychopomp. And mm-hmm. was it a reference to this movie or where is that coming from? I thought that was such wow, a that's fascinating. Yeah. That's cool. I'd really like to talk to the people that created Psychopomp micro distillery, <laughs> but I don't think we've actually talked about how the movie ends, have we? No. Good no, point. Not, not not explicitly, no. Go for it. So we know that the the giant troop was going through the forest. At a certain point, Death comes out and plays his last game against Tony Block, and Tony loses. But while that happens, yes, and Yoff uh, Yoff sees them doing this, sees them doing this, and realizes, yeah, he decides that (laughs) he's a crowd, and they need to get the heck out of there while Death is distracted, so that uh, you know, like metaphorically speaking, the gaze of Death Death will pass over them. Everyone else in the group will die. But they'll get away, and that's right. actually what en- ends up happening. The yep. the group travels on to Block's castle slash house. I don't know that we ever see the outside of it. And I think that's I think that's important for the existentialist reading. nature of the film. The existentialist reading. I think I think it's stronger than a reading. I mean, I think that's explicitly what he's doing here. But Block talks about how he, you know, he's he's going to die, and he wants to find this like one meaningful thing that he's going to do with his life, and essentially. He delays death enough, fools death by knocking over the pieces to allow this one family to escape the plague. And it's the one thing he does in his life that's meaningful, despite the fact that life is meaningless. And I think that's a very existentialist statement. I think I think the ending is very important to the message of the film, as, as I see it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good that you brought that up. And it leads directly into my biggest surprise, if we're ready for that. I, I think we're ready. Are we ready? Okay, let's do it. Biggest surprise. And let's start with Chris, since Chris has teased us so much with his biggest surprise. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not going to be that he's porky pigging it through the whole podcast. Absolutely not. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> that would be all of our greatest surprise. So, the last shot of the movie is basically all of the dead people being led by death on a hillside. Right. Dancing under this voluminous thundercloud. 
my biggest surprise is that was not planned. Right. That was something that the directors saw the cloud yeah. and just said, we need to film this. I have a great idea. Most of the actors had already gone home. So the people in that scene are, are not the main actors. From various the key grips, lighting technicians, and two tourists. That's very that, cool. So yeah. that is a, a beautiful, lasting shot. The final shot of the movie, as it turns out. Uh -huh. And it was just made up on the spot. That, Serendipity. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said for the era when filmmaking was cheaper. I mean, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't a cheap endeavor, but it was cheaper than today. If you're making Ant-Man 9, you cannot be inspired and put together a shot to throw into the movie Ant-Man 9. Everything costs $100 million and has to be done in computers. They're, they're not even exterior shots. And realistically, in Ant-Man 9 whenever it comes out the right. fight scenes have been pre-visualized two years prior so as a director right. you're really directing certain portions of the movie right i mean they've been storyboarded ad nauseum i'm sure so anyway you're saying that's why you haven't seen the eighth seal they just can't get the suits to sign off on that huge budget that's right that's a pretty good yeah. surprise i like that because one yeah. of the most famous shots from the film is 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 just an inspired just inspired thing that couldn't have, couldn't happen in modern cinema i don't think so I guess mine is kind of minor. Uh, it's very important to the way the film is put together. But I had heard, I think I actually watched this movie when I was about eight. I think my dad showed it to me because he was really into trying to show me the great films of history. So I think we did watch it because I do remember watching the death scenes, but it's a very vague memory anyway. But what I, I, I thought of it as being, there's this whole movie and then a climactic chess game between the knight and the Grim Reaper. And I didn't think it was like you start a couple moves and then you get to go walk around and do a bunch of stuff in between moves. And, and I was thinking, what is the I didn't I guess maybe it would ruin it because it, I didn't really understand that it's one day. That makes a lot more sense. It seemed to me like this movie kind of rambled through several days or weeks. I didn't I didn't really put together that it was one day. It is but a very I, unhurried pace. Yes, it's a very unhurried pace to the film. There's a lot of people being involved. A lot of things happen. But it makes sense. I mean, the witch gets burned. They meet the the, the witch is on trial and, and about to be burned. And it would make sense that she gets burned that same day. I, I I definitely think you're right about being one day, but it's not how I perceived it during the first watch. I, I was, uh, I guess what I'm saying is my biggest surprise is the leisurely pace of the game against the game against death. For all that it's like probably the most iconic image to come out of this movie, it's a relatively small part overall. So we talked about Bill and Ted's bogus journey. But mm -hmm. what I realize is there's one scene where they're sitting together to play chess at the mm -hmm. table. And I realize that's the shot from Princess Bride when they sit down to play the game, the game against each other, the death. Never go oh. against the Sicilian when death is on the death line. Death is on the it's line. Yeah, clearly, yeah. clearly it's framed wow. the shot just like the, the, uh, wow. the chess game. But anyway. Check out the big brain of cool. Rob Reiner. I, I didn't catch that. I yeah, like that. It's cool. There's a whole lot of nods to this film in, in various uh mm -hmm. various yeah, movies. Yeah. But that yeah, that's yeah. one that's one that I saw right there. So that's a good segue to me, yeah. Because yeah, so that yeah, this is a super influential movie, a castle launch out over a lot of things. There's a lot to dig into, and I've had a great amount of a great time here uh, digging into it with you guys. But uh -huh. my biggest surprise was that when I was actually sitting watching the movie directly, it kind of didn't do a lot for me. Yep. Like the actual act of watching the movie, and I and I think that it is because precisely because this movie is so influential and looms so large that it is it's so influential that it's become cliched. It is it has ascended 
to that point where it, I don't think it's possible to watch this movie without already having seen a, a lot of it. Imagine yourself as a moviegoer in 1958 sitting down. Exactly. This film. Yeah. It's hard to do that. It's very. Yeah, I don't think about that very thing a few different times. I think we call it the, the time traveler problem where you can't. Right. You know, go back and read the time traveler and, you know, because you've seen all those ideas and other things. My, mm-hmm. my my daughter asked me the other day, she said, I'm trying to catch up on some classic films and I want to watch Citizen Kane and Casablanca. And I and so I was like, Casablanca is going is immediately going to strike you. You're going to enjoy the movie and you're going to like it as a movie right away because the dialogue's great. It's a funny movie. It, it pulls on the emotions. It's like the actual script is what's great about that movie. Citizen Kane. I know from learning about movies is an amazing cinematic accomplishment, but it, it's really hard to to know how much it broke the rules for something from what is it, nineteen forty two? Yeah, something like that. That's yeah. really funny, actually, because you know, I actually had the res- the opposite response to those movies. When I watched Casablanca, I was like, I've been marinating in this soup my whole life. I I can't come to this movie with unblemished eyes. But Citizen Kane, all I knew about it was was the spoiler that everyone knows. So like right, there was so right, much right. of that movie that I didn't know and hadn't seen. And I was like shocked by how funny it was as well. Like, yeah, I love Citizen Kane when I watched it. Maybe I need to go back and watch it again. I just I don't the story doesn't isn't as compelling to me. I think a lot of what Wells gets uh, credit for is his ability to create shots that had never existed right. in cinema before which mm-hmm. is very so, difficult like I, it's a time traveler problem a shot yeah. that had never been done before in 1940 has been done a million times in my life and i've seen exactly. it I, you know exactly. took it in and I, the day I, I, I think was bergman born. probably suffers from that a bit as exactly. well too, so. exactly because i i was watching a video about the movie and someone was talking about each shot being like a painting and i went back and looked at it and i was like it really is it really is there's a lot of thought going in each one of these shots they're they're framed in a way that somebody's putting thought into things expecting them to be seen over and over again and to be kind of like appreciating a painting mm-hmm. you know from the 1800s or the 1700s or something it's you have to put yourself in the mind of what people would have seen at the time and try to i mean if you think about what what a painting in the renaissance would have done to somebody's mind with what they'd seen in real life it would blow your mind and something like Citizen Kane or Seven Seals is the same thing. You look at you look at what you would have seen before that, and you try to picture that person's mind. It's a it's a trick of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. That's I mean different difficult to pull off intuitively. It's like you said. I had the same reaction, Joe. I, I watched the movie and it 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 wasn't doing that much for me. What was was I was like? Yeah, it's just been so thoroughly digested and homage and parodied that it's really really hard to just like scrape off all those layers of the of the pearl and get back to that original uh... when i saw the title of this film in swedish i actually went on google translate to play how it would be pronounced in swedish like it looks like det synda in seglet but the way they say it on google translate is like det hunde in seglet and i was like okay apparently swedish is just impossible to pronounce it's just one of the seventh dog i also want to bring up briefly that um I am pretty sure that I have seen this movie before. I'm pretty sure I saw it during college, like in film class, but mm. I have no memory of it. What I do remember, though, is the film uh, is the, the film my professor played after The Seventh Seal, Der Duva, which is a somewhat notorious parody of this movie in particular in Bergman oh, okay. in general. Uh, okay. And in that movie, like they play like badminton against death. 
So uh, I think we've come to the point on the podcast where we decide whether or not we're going to toast this classic. Who's feeling a little iffy? Is anybody iffy? I think that person should go first. Yeah, I think this is. I think it's again no drama this time. I think it's unanimous. I'll go. I'll go first then because I think I was. I was where Joe was with your biggest surprise. I watched this and I was like, "What's the big deal?" I enjoyed. I enjoyed the shots at the beginning with the beach. I thought they were great. I could see that. I liked the idea of death, the way he acted and things. I enjoyed a lot of the characters, but I was like, "Is this really that? What's the What's the big deal?" It turned around for me. Uh, at the witch burning scene, like I said, I felt like I suddenly became much more emotionally invested there. Like that hit me for some reason. And then the end, I just thought was more serious and important. And, you know, and it came out of it. My overall thought was I was like, maybe I'm going to go into the podcast and sort of be devil's advocate and say, like, is this one any good? But when we started talking about it, pulling apart all the different layers to what's going on in the film. And to me, that's right away where you're starting to get into classic territory. If you can have a fun and interesting a smart conversation about something i feel like kind of have to toast and that's where i'm ending up so i'm 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 raising my glass to this one yeah yeah i absolutely agree with you dave yeah like you know i i have no illusions whatsoever that, that my issues with like getting into this movie and enjoying it as a piece of filmmaking are absolutely on me and not on any of the cast or crew because yeah like there's there's a whole lot in this movie there's a whole lot to tease out we had a really great discussion about it yeah uh, and i really and i re- i appreciate and respect this movie and it's really just my fault. You know, it's really just my fault that this movie is so good that it's just been so thoroughly absorbed into our cultural ether that right. I can't appreciate the you know it firsthand anymore. That is, you know, I, I, I'm too familiar. It's like with a lack that. of imagination on my part to not be able to appreciate how great it must have been in 1958. It's kind of how I feel. To uh, to, to the Seventh Seal for me, certainly. It's okay, that's two. That's two. So you're outvoted, Chris. If you, if you want to weigh in against this classic of Swedish film but you can do so if you so choose. Well, this movie comes in with some handicaps against it. It's got 65 years out of its era. It's Mm -hmm. in black and white. It's in a foreign language. Right. And despite all that, I found it pretty gripping from start to finish. There were some parts in the middle where I found it a little bit harder to push through for whatever reason, but it's a stellar cast. Someone can take a, a role that's not particularly large and make meat out of it and just be a standout memorable performance and as you said we've been sitting here talking about it for what two and a half hours or whatever it is in, in, mm. in real time, not in compressed actual podcast time I, I it's like we said about the big lebowski i think w- what you just said reminded me of that it's like when you have a character that's on screen they're not wasting your time like everybody does something with even the smallest parts that they have that's interesting it's like that it's like the villain Raval is like the Jesus, you know. I mean, it's like, do not waste my time. If you're going to be on the screen, do something cool, be memorable. And I feel like that was sort of the watchword for this one too. Yeah, I felt like there were very few time wasters. I felt maybe there were a couple of them. You know, the uh, the Smith and his wife, maybe a little certain- goofy, right? They're a little goofy. Totally a little different from the rest of the. Yeah. Uh, but no, I gotta give it to this movie. That's it's it's worth checking out only if only to say you've seen it, and it's it's very pretty. It's a gorgeous movie. Yeah. yeah can I ask, Chris? Uh, is this the first time you'd seen this movie? It's funny. I was just thinking. This is, I think, the first time I've been on the podcast. I've been the only one who hasn't seen. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, usually, uh, it's something either I suggest or multiple people are coming in without having seen it but i'm ca- going- i'm counting myself as not having seen it i really i think i saw it when i was a little tiny kid and yeah. i 
I think I fell asleep five minutes in the movie, maybe even. I mean, it's I don't count that. So yeah, like I said, I must have seen this before, but like clearly just in like a few state. Yeah. No, so yeah. this was totally fresh to me. I'd never seen a Bergman movie before, so it, it I was pretty excited to actually sit down and watch it. And I'm glad glad we did. Thank you yeah. for the suggestion. That was nice. Yeah. yeah, this was a fun one. I thought we had a good discussion here. I thought this was a. I'm glad I can check this off my list. This was a good movie to watch. I guess for toasting the classics, I'm ready to sign off, and I've enjoyed. <laughs> and by the way, I'm toasting Aquavit. Oh, we got the drink itself. All right, the drink yeah. itself. The drink itself. Exactly. So just drinking without ice the next time you get. Definitely more of that floral bouquet. I don't know if I want more of the floral bouquet. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see, but we'll see. Anyway, for Toasting the Classics, this is Dave MacArthur signing off. I've been Chris, Greg. I'm still Joe. All right, peace out, everybody. It is finished. That's it for episode 88 of Toasting the Classics. I hope you had half as much fun listening as we did recording that one. For those playing along at home, stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking as we discuss the surfing documentary, Endless Summer. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and teach us some swear words in Swedish. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. I wish the phrase porky pigging it did not bring you to mind, but it does. You just blew my mind there a little bit, Dave.